0: And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls. Played by Ricky Fowler, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. Now, I know you know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X. And now it's available in high visibility yellow. Are you the next to make the switch? Check it out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. All right, now back and get this, making his 14th appearance with me here on Next on the Tee. Like I said, at the top is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Bob Friend Jr. Let me remind you about Bob's background. He's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, played his college golf at LSU, where he and David Thompson, the rest of their LSU teammates, won the 1986 SEC Championship. He had 11 career top 10 finishes while at LSU. He won the Pennsylvania State Championship in back-to-back years in 1984 and 85. Turn pro in 87. He played on the Corn Ferry Tour, the PGA Tour, and the Champions Tour. He had five top 10 finishes his rookie year out on the Corn Ferry Tour, including a second place finish at the El Paso Open. Got his first win at the 1991 Fort Wayne Open. He had five top 10 finishes in 1994, three more in 97. In all, he finished in the top 10 27 times. Baseball fans, particularly Pittsburgh Pirates fans, are going to remember his father who pitched in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966 and was a key member of the 1960 Pirates World Championship team that beat the New York Yankees. And I have been on top of all of the accolades that Bob has achieved so far in his golf or his business career, this might be the top of the list. This year, he was named the Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year for the amount of money he's been able to raise for that charity. He's been a great friend of the show since my first season back in 2014, and I'm thrilled he's back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Bob, how are you, my friend?
1: Chris, I could not be better. My goodness, you really embellished there. (laughs) I didn't know I'd done so much stuff, but thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. 2020 Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year. Good for you, my friend. Talk about what you're doing to help out that organization.
1: Well, so what it is is that I had a very good friend and client by the name of Peter Katz who was named Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year last year, and I helped him raise some money. and so Peter approached me this year in January and just said, "Hey, he said, you know you'd probably be pretty good at this. Uh, you have a lot of connections, you know a lot of people. Uh, would you be interested in, in running?" And basically what it is you're basically it's a fundraiser, and ideally, it's supposed to be from uh, March." 5th until May 16th and then uh after that then there's a big gala and what you do is you you're raising as much money as you can and that's basically um you know 10 week period and um then covid hit and so i i signed up to to run with about six other people six other men and um you know basically just i i i reached out to Bob Estes i reached out to David Toms i reached out to a lot of friends uh Howard Hanna uh, real Estate Services, Dick's Sporting Goods, and then just a lot of really good friends all around the country that donated. So I'm really not the hero. I'm just calls. Um But I was able to raise around $53,000 this year in the middle of this pandemic. Um, it's not as much as I wanted to raise. And we had a virtual celebration, uh, and we actually extended it one more month. So it basically ended in the middle of June. And, um, I was named there. I was as shocked as anybody. And, uh, so as Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year, I do, uh, I do some, uh, I guess some charity speaking events, trying to make people aware of the blood can, trying to defeat blood cancers. And I'll do your, some like guest appearances you do. Um, but for the most part, I'm just, I'm just so thankful for all the great friends and the, and the companies that supported my campaign. And they're, they are the real heroes. So, uh, it's quite an honor, and, well, again, we raised $53,000 for leukemia lymphoma, and um, all the money goes to the charity. And, it, it, you know, Mario Lemieux, the um, good friend, he he donated a signed jersey. Bill Mazeroski uh, donated a signed golf ball, or a signed baseball. Paul Azinger uh, donated some uh, Ryder Cup memorabilia from his captaincy in 2008. So, again, like I said, David Thomas, Bob is some of my tour friends, and uh, my dad's old teammate Bill Maserati. So I'm very thankful for everybody.
0: Well, kudos to you and all of them, Bob, for for doing what you did. That's that's outstanding stuff. So, and, and particularly during you know the, a pandemic like we're going through now, to be able to raise that kind of money uh, uh, speaks volumes to everybody who got involved. Again, kudos to you guys. Thank before you. Before we get before we get into the uh, into the golf stuff, Bob, got to get a quick thought. Um, SEC football, college football, and uh, and NFL football. Are we gonna have a football season. How do you think they can pull it off?
1: Well, I think the yes, I think the SEC is gonna get it done. Um, I'm very disappointed in the Big Ten. Um, I'm very disappointed in the Pac-12. I just again, I think that uh, you pull the trigger a little bit early. I'm not downplaying the seriousness of this of this virus. However, when you take a look to see the ages of the young men that are playing. And if you go and you can successfully quarantine them, really see, you know, you have very, very few people with a mortality rate um, that's anywhere other than minuscule uh, with healthy young men getting it. And I think that if you can go and you can kind of keep them separated from the elderly, from those with pre-existing conditions, I don't see why any reason why you can't be out there playing. And I just feel so sick for these young kids and these athletes and all the all the fall sports, basically they've trained their life, they've worked their rear ends off, their families, especially in the uh, the non reverend sports such as tennis, such as golf, uh, you know, such as track and field, where the parents have been taking these kids all over the United States for travel events, everything else to get them into college, and uh, only to have their season canceled or postponed. I think it's a damn shame. Um, but I think that we will have SEC football, uh, as far as the NFL, uh, you know, who knows? I, I, I be honest with you. Um, I am more of an SEC college football fan than I am a professional football fan anymore.
0: Bob, let's switch over to golf. And, and you put out a tweet last week talking about Hogan's alley and playing in the 2016 senior open championship there at Carnoustie. Talk about the golf course and what it was like being a part of that event.
1: Well, I can tell you, it was it was my first trip to UK to play golf. And a lot of people are like, oh, I can't believe you didn't do that. But what people have to understand is this. I competed, uh, you know, all over the world in my quote-unquote prime for about 17 years. I played in South Africa. I played all through Canada. I played Central America. I played the PGA Tour, as you, as you noted, and the Corn Ferry Tour, as you noted. Um, when you are playing as much as I did, and I was a journeyman, you know, you're going to have John Conn one of my heroes, one of the truly great golf swings, um, that I have ever seen in terms of its simplicity and its efficiency. Um, when you go and you take a look at, I was playing 30 to 35 weeks every single week, every single year on the PGA Tour and, and Corn Ferry Tour. When you have a week off, The last thing you want to do is hop on a plane, fly six hours with some knucklehead friends and go play a week golf trip. So I never went. And so I actually was playing competing on the champions tour a little bit in 2016. And a lot of the guys I hang out with just said, you ought to go over and try to qualify. And I took a look at it and the, uh, the European tour does a wonderful job in terms of their qualifying spots. They had, you know, four locations, Hundred guys, ten spots, each location. I thought, you know what, I can do that. So I flew over and uh, I qualified at a place called Montafe, which is where Tom Watson played his first round ever in Scotland. And I shot seventy two, I qualified, and I was so excited. I actually went over by myself, I I, I roomed by myself, and I just I fell in love with Scotland. It was amazing. I just couldn't get the smile off my face. And uh, then I went over to Carnoustie and I played uh, my practice round on Tuesday with uh with Brant Job and um it was it was amazing. The golf course is so hard. Um and the finishing holes of 15, 16, 17 and 18 are like 2 miles of lonesome road and you you sit there and you talk about you know, what is the true mark of a great golf course? The true mark of a great golf course is if you play it and two, three, five years down the road, you can remember every hole. I remember every single hole at Carnoustie. I just think it's absolutely brilliant. It has a lot of Oakmont to it, and it's very penal. Talk about that sixth hole there at Carnoustie. Uh, dogs wag their tails up and down there, and people walk their single file. Uh, it's hard to believe that Ben Hogan took the aggressive line up the left-hand side, where you have no nothing to stop. It's not like playing in the U.S. Open the United States. Where if you get a ball on the ground, it starts running and you've got the heavy rock to keep it from going into real trouble. Um, Over there, I mean, literally, it's like an airport runway. So you get one going a little bit left, uh, the ball is going to go out of bounds. And the bunkers that that go in the center of the fairway on that particular hole are like coffins. And uh, I, of course, aimed it at those bunkers and I I slid it up out there each and every day and played up the right side, the fat side. Um, But I made the cut. You know, I, I I had a lot of fun there um 18th holders one of the great finishes and it's li- literally with all the tournament golf that i've played the the most fun i have ever had other than it was almost when the canadian open um was competing in the 2016 senior open championship of Carnoustie. it was the best experience of my life it was awesome
0: so that begs the question while you were there did you just play there and come back or did you you tour around a little bit and take in some of the other local golf courses
1: no, what I did was I actually I got there on Friday and I played King's Barnes, um, which was absolutely brilliant as well. I played with a good buddy by the name of Greg Bruckner, and uh Brucky and I played there and then on uh on you know, then Saturday and Sunday I played practice rounds at Montafe and then I like said uh shot seventy two on Monday. There were four men for two spots. I got in uh in the playoff and I was fortunate to get through in the third extra hole. But it was one of those things where um You know, I probably could have stayed over there, but I really didn't have make any plans, and uh, I'll go back. My goal is to take my boys over there uh, in a few years and and just have, like, a nice long week where we make a lot of arrangements and play some of those great golf courses because I love it. I absolutely love Scotland and the way the game of golf is played over there.
0: Good for you. Good for them. Bob, you also commented on a video of Jordan Spieth on the – on the practice tee last week over at the Wyndham Championship, he's waggling there, you know, before he you know, could pull the trigger on a on a practice drive. He sort of stood over the ball for about 20 seconds, which to me is just another sign that there's a there's a lot going on in his mind. He so, it sort of reminded me of, of Billy Chapel, and for the love of the game he needs to clear the mechanism in order to just go out and play. If, if you're a guy like Speed Bob, how do you, how do you clear your thoughts and just go out and play the game of golf and quit all the stuff that's going on in your head?
1: Well, he clearly he clearly has struggled the last several years. Um, I think he has over instructed. I think here's the number one thing that I think that a lot of great players get into: um, trying to be perfect. You know what? You're not going to be perfect. You know Bob Rotella, who I worked with for 28 years. Uh, his great book, Golf is not a game of perfect. You know, you can't, you're not going to perfect the game. Um, you have to go out there and you have to see your target as a as a touring person. Look, if you're if the the average amateur that's that's listening to your game, you're just getting started. Yes, there is some. It's a very difficult game, but you know the game is made up of grip, posture, ball position, alignment. You work on those four fundamentals, and then you basically have your swing. I don't know, Palmer famously said, you got to swing your swing. I think that what Jordan Spieth is trying to do right now, I think that he is trying to be perfect. Um, You don't have to be perfect. You have to be athletic. You know, what what the game of golf is, it's a very slow reaction sport. In tennis, um, in hockey, you're dealing with the puck. In tennis, you're dealing with the ball. In baseball, you're dealing with the baseball. And the ball comes in, you see it, and then you react to it. The game of golf, the ball is not the object. The target is the object. And so what you want to do when you when you play tournament golf, when you play any kind of golf, is you start back behind the ball and you briefly decide a picture or a feel or a sound of what you want to create in your golf swing. You hold your picture in your mind's eye, you step up to the ball, and while you're swinging at the ball, you hold the picture of your mind's eye in your mind and you swing away. Um, you know, you you can't control what happens Once the golf ball leaves the club face, the only thing you can control is your reaction to what happens. And when you go and you see a guy like Jordan Spieth, who is at the very pinnacle of the game, stand over a practice shot for 25, 30 seconds, he's got way too much going on. What he should be doing in terms of practicing is that if he is working with something on his golf swing with his instructor, he needs to go and have every 10 balls on that for four swings. Okay, this is what I'm going to work on, and I'm going to base uh, whether or not I was successful with it with the ball flight. Not whether it went to the target, but the ball flight. And then you throw away your aiming rod it's on the ground, and the next six shots are just routine, where you start step back. Everybody has a routine. My routine was always, Step into it, take a waggle, a look, a waggle, and then go. So what you want to do is that he wants to—he you want to get back behind the ball in your practice, decide what you want to hit, fade, high, low, left, right, whatever, hold your target, and literally just practice your routine without any swing thoughts for six shots. So you want to be athletic, you want to be reactive to your target, and then the next four balls, you work on what you're working on physically, the next six balls. He has got to get more athletic. We saw this with Sergio Garcia about 15 years ago when he got to the point where he was taking 20, at one point he was taking 27 waggles and looks. He just he couldn't pull the trigger because it's, it's, it's paralysis by analysis. And I think that the best thing that Jordan can do is just get away from his instructor a little bit and work on shaping and creating shots in practice and in his mind and stepping up there and doing the best that he can to trust it where you're actually taking swings and not making swings, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. And to, to your point, in, in, in that explanation, you talked about him being over-instructed and needing maybe to get away from his instructor. So in that in that yeah. vein, Bob, is it time for him? Is that is that a way to kind of clear everything going on in his head by taking a break from Cameron McCormick and just kind of getting out there and doing it on his own? So that maybe that helps to press the reset button,
1: absolutely, and I don't think he gets a new teacher. I just think he tells Cameron, you know what I've got everything I need for right now. I need to go out, I need to figure out how to play the game of golf instead of the game of swing, and it's absolutely what he, it's absolutely what he needs to do. you know the, the, I never understood it. you know years ago i used to I played some casual golf with Jack Nicholas, and he was talking to his oldest son, Jackie, who was my close friend. And I remember listening to him, and and Jack was always talking about, you know, this, you do this, and he said, just, you got to be athletic. And you know what, at the time, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Now at the age of 56, with the people that I have taught and all the golf that I've played, you have to be athletic. You have to be reactive to your target. And you can't do that when your mind is cluttered up with all this rubbish and swing thoughts and worried about being perfect. Again, worrying about making swings. You want to go out there and take swings and he needs to go out. You know, one of the great things that my college golf coach, buddy Alexander at LSU, he never overtaught us because we had to figure out that if it got going sideways on the golf course, we had to figure out how to get it straightened out on our own while we were on the fly on the golf course. He wasn't there to hold our hands. I learned an awful lot from him. He was a great golf coach.
0: Bob, you talk about playing, you know, some, some with, uh, with Mr. Nicholas. I know you you played in his tournament, the Memorial, back in the late '80s. Um, I think he, I think I remember you telling the story one time about getting an opportunity when you were playing at the Memorial to uh, to have a couple of practice rounds with Mister Nicholas. What's yeah, it like actually, playing it actually,
1: with him? It was actually it was actually late '90s, Chris, and you're correct. I played both years. It was funny. I was '98 uh, was uh, was my first year in the Memorial, and I was actually just breezing through the locker room. And I was I was on my way to the practice tee and uh I hear this voice to me, hey friendly. I turn around, I'm, you know, you know the voice because it's a very distinctive, relatively high voice. It's like, hey, friendly, hey Mr. Nicholas, how are you? Great, hey, congratulations in the tournament. Where are you headed? I said, Well, in the practice range. He said, Well, why don't we go play nine holes. I'm like, Okay, <laughs> you know, if Jack <laughs> Nicholas asked you to play anywhere, you're gonna drop what you're doing. <laughs> um yeah, so we played we played our practice round there on Tuesday. I uh, just played nine holes the back nine. And then the next year I had qualified for his tournament again. And uh I got to my locker. He left me a note and he said, uh, see you Tuesday at 11 o'clock, number 10. So it was great. It was, he was, he is, and, and look, Tiger is fantastic. This Jack Nicklaus is the greatest player in the history of the game. Not only because of his record, obviously 18 majors, 19 seconds, 56 top three finishes overall, but the fact of the matter is that the guy never and Tiger's an unbelievable ball striker. Nicholas, I never saw Nicholas miss a miss a miss a hole two fairways over. Um, he was the longest straight driver in the history of the game. People don't understand the power that the gentleman had in 1961. He broke the inserts out of nine drivers. And this is these are not pinnacle range balls. These are like super Bowls. And it was just an unbelievable experience just to watch the Christmas of his shots. He's just, he's just a remarkable human being. And the greatest, the greatest asset on top of all the wonderful physical attributes he had was that mind of his. It was, uh, I mean, if I had, if I put that brain in my body, I probably would have blown a gasket. He was just absolutely (laughs) brilliant and smart and the ability to compartmentalize everything of his life. He was, you know, a lot of people don't realize when he won the eighty six Masters, he was on the actual the, the, the precipice of complete financial collapse. He had lost a lot of money in a land development deal up in New York, St. Andrews. And uh he made a mistake. He got he got he put his personal wealth into the project, thought he couldn't miss, and he lost his rear end in it, and he was on the precipice of total financial collapse. Most people would be stuck in their thumb in a corner. Here, the guy goes out at the age of 46 and wins the Masters. So the guy's mind is of, of like nothing that this game has ever seen.
0: Bob, I want to switch gears a little bit. And I want to get your thoughts on, you know, the player caddy relationship. When you're playing out on tour, what were some of the things that you wanted and expected from your caddy? And what were some things that you didn't want your caddy to do?
1: Well, you always want your caddy to be positive. You know, if you're up there on a on a uh, on a tee, you know there's a right way to say a thing, a wrong way to say things. You know, you're sitting up there and you've got uh, you've got bunkers on the left, and uh, you know the the wide open to the right. You know, you don't want your to Whatever you do, don't hit the left here. You know, if, if you always <laughs> want to be in the positive, you know the caddy would say to you, "Let's keep it up the right hand side here," or you know if you've got a whole location that's cut over on the left hand side and the left is just absolute death. You know, your caddy is not going to say, "Yeah, whatever you do, let's make sure we don't miss it left." The of say, "Hey, you know, he'll give you a good target. Hey, I like the I like the T and CBS Sports behind uh, behind the green there. Let's fall in love with that target. Let's get a real good positive thought. You know, a good caddy, on top of the fact that when you show up to the practice ground before you play a round of golf, every club is out of your bag. They have rubbed down, wiped down every single grip. They've got your tees ready. They got everything ready. So you don't have to do anything." And then on the golf course, a good caddy is like a jockey, is like racing the Kentucky Derby. You know, as, as you sometimes see it, you know, you watch a horse race. Sometimes the jockey just kind of flashes that crop in the horse's eye and sometimes gives him a whack on the rear end. And that's what a good caddy will do. A good caddy needs to know when to the, when the show his player the crop. And a good caddy knows when to give his player a real good smack on the behind. And a good caddy is always going to have a good, positive, soft player, but you're also going to be very organized in terms of the notes that you have taken. Like if you play on Tuesday and you get up on the 12th hole and you hit your tee shot on tournament day, you know, your caddy, and you got like 167 to the hole. Your caddy will say, okay, uh, we we have 150 to the front. You've got 167 to the hole. You've got a little bit of ridge. You've got to get the ball over. On Tuesday in our practice round, we had 169. You hit eight iron, it flew 163 and released out to 168. So the the caddies on tour, they know exactly to the yard, exactly where each ball landed and where it finished out in your practice round. So when you're out there and you're in between clubs, you can say, okay, well, on Tuesday we had 185 and you hit six, it flew 173 and released out to 178. They will have that to organize. But most importantly, they're going to know when to talk, when to be quiet, And usually, it's the guys on tour, you want your caddy out there just for good conversation in between shots. Keep your mind relaxed in between shots. And when that bag is set down next to the golf ball, that's when you start drawing in your focus and your energy.
0: Bob, just a couple more before I let you go. And speaking of caddies, give me your thought about what happened at the U.S. Amateur this past week. Segundo Oliva Uh, Pinto lost his match on the 18th hole to the eventual champion, Tyler Strafasi. Because his caddy reached into the bunker and touched the sand. Talk about why that's a no-no.
1: Well, the first thing is, what's the most disappointing thing about is that the caddy lied. Okay? You don't lie. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, you know, if you sit there, you got the overhead camera. We all know that there are cameras and videos everywhere. The guy lied. Now, what happened? The guy, he made a mental mistake. You know, he kind of fell asleep at the wheel. He's a club caddy out there. He's probably accustomed to doing that for his amateurs. It's a very rough golf course, so it's probably a situation where when he's counting for these amateurs, you've got some places, as all who have been out there, the wind blows like 30, 35 miles an hour. So it's going to whip some of that sand out of those bunkers. And he's probably accustomed to going in there as his player approaches and just kind of test the sand and say, hey, you know what? There's not much sand here. And then to try to help the amateur player, he made a mental mistake. But for him to lie about it was really, really disappointing.
0: Bob, before I let you go, give us an update on how things are going uh, with the family. Your your beautiful wife, Claire, your, your sons, Charlie and Andrew, your daughter, Libby. How's everybody at home?
1: Everybody's doing great, Chris. My son, Charlie, lives in Columbus where he graduated from Ohio State, and he's working for Morgan Stanley. My daughter, Libby, just graduated from Boulder in May, and she is a second-grade school teacher at Park Lane Elementary in Aurora, Colorado. Today was her first day with her class. It's virtual. First day with her class, second graders. They're all monsters, as we know. And uh, my youngest son, Andrew, is playing one more year of junior college golf at Jefferson City Community College in Birmingham, Alabama. They play a great schedule. He's down there on scholarship, and he is immensely talented. He just needs to mature a little bit on the golf course. Probably all those years he spent not listening to his dad.
0: <laughs> no doubt. no Bob, doubt. Before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing now and follow you on social media.
1: Well, my social media is with regards to golf is at Bob Friend underscore golf. And I will chime in mostly uh, watching golf tournaments, making some observations. Um, and then they can also follow me, Bob Friend at HowardHanna.com is my email. I am the uh, sales director for the Howard Hanna Squirrel Hill office out of Pittsburgh. Howard Hanna is the third largest real estate company in the United States. And we're the largest family owned real estate company in the United States. And, uh, I've got a great age. I've got great agents, 75 great agents. And, uh, my website there is Bob Friend at Howard Hanna. You can just look me up and we'll, we'll talk about buying and selling real estate.
0: Well, Bob, my friend, you are the best. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show and do it as often as you have. You're absolutely one of my all-time favorites. I hope I get the uh, privilege of catching up with you again real soon.
1: Well, Chris, with this COVID thing, my plan was to have you out to Oakmont this this fall, but that is, uh, it's been a little bit crazy. So hopefully we can do it next year. I want to thank you. I want to thank all the men and women in our military. We cannot thank you enough for our service. And all the men and women in blue and the men and women in the fire departments, we love you. You guys are indispensable. You're all heroes. And, Chris, as always, you are the most prepared talk show host in golf.
0: I appreciate you, my friend. That means a great deal to me. Take care. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon, Bob.
1: Anytime, Chris. Cheers. God bless.
0: See you, Bob. That's a great Bob Friend Jr., folks. Like I said, 14 times on the show, he's been, uh, I think he was on episode three back in 2014 when we first started this thing. And he has been a wonderful friend and a great guest uh, over the years. I can't thank him enough. Rooting hard for Andrew, how his, uh, his young golf career starts to round out and take, uh, take shape, starts listening to his dad. Looking forward to catching up with Bob again real soon.